Irish Novelists Podcast as part of the Dublin Book Festival. I'm Roisin Ingle and a big welcome to our guests today. They are Nisha Dolan, Susanna Dickey and Hilary Fannin, whose debut novels Exciting Times, Tennis Lessons and The Weight of Love were released earlier this year to amazing reviews, it has to be said. They've got distinctly Irish voices, all of them. And with Nisha and Susanna, they have this kind of contemporary commentary on that awkward coming of age years and what it means to be young and a young woman today, while Hilary takes on a turbulent marriage and the various ways in which we can love and be loved. So I'm going to tell you a little bit before we get into it about these three very talented writers. Nisha Dolan is an Irish writer born in Dublin. She studied English literature at Trinity College Dublin and Oxford University and now lives in London. Exciting Times is, as I said, her best-selling debut novel, an excerpt from which was published first in The Stinging Fly. Susanna Dickey's from Derry, stroke London Derry, Northern Ireland. She's the author of two poetry pamphlets, I Had Some Very Slight Concerns, and Genuine Human Values. Her poetry has been published in Ambit, The White Review, Poetry Ireland Review, and she's won some very good prizes uh, along the way as well. And her debut novel, Tennis Lessons, was a uh, released in July 2020. And finally, Hilary Fannin is an Irish Times columnist, an award-winning playwright, born in Dublin, where she still lives. She was writer in association at the Abbey Theatre in its centenary year. And some of her plays include Mackerel Sky, Doldrum Bay and Famished Castle. And they've been performed all over the world in Europe and North America. And she was awarded Irish Columnist of the Year in 2019. And her memoir, Hopscotch, was published to critical acclaim in 2015. The Weight of Love is her first novel. You're all very welcome. Um, you're all having a great uh, year time with your debut novel, apart from the pandemic, which we'll go into at some point. But I wanted to kind of give everyone an introduction to your work and to your books. So I thought we could go around and you can give a little description of the plot. And I know, Susanna, you're going to say your your novel has no plot, which will be interesting to talk about <laughs> later. But um, we'll start with you, Hilary. Maybe you could tell us about the book and then sure. give us a short flavour of the writing. Yeah. Good morning, Roshan. Lovely to uh, lovely to see you. Lovely to Yay. see anybody. Isn't it? I mean, I don't, you know, it's really nice to see other humans <clears throat> that you don't live with. Um, yeah, so The Weight of Love is, um, it's uh, essentially, it's a love story. It's a triangulated love story, and it takes place over two time frames, London in 1995 and Dublin now. <clears throat> and in London in 1995, um, a character called Ruth uh, meets two men, Robin and Joseph. She has a child with one of them and a marriage with the other one. Um, and so we flip to now, and we look at, I suppose, we look at how a life can go on without really deciding that that's the kind of life that you would necessarily choose. I suppose it's about waking up one morning and saying, how did I get here? I don't remember making these decisions. Um, <laughs> nothing will be familiar with at all. Anyway, um, yeah, so it is a triangulated love story. It's also a story about memory. It's also a story about mothers. It's also a story about... Um, um about as you say about how we love and how we can be loved and how we learn to respond to love from a very early age and i and god knows what else the kitchen sink is in there too so i'll stop talking and read something and um, this is a very very short reading um the three central characters ruth robin and joseph are uh ruth and joseph have just met and they're walking down a london street on the way to have a cup of coffee at Joseph's suggestion, the three of them left the schoolyard and walked down Judd Street to a cafe where they could get out of the rain and continue their introductions. Winding their way through the wet streets, their conversation curtailed by the traffic and the sharpening rain, allegiances were brewing and rivalries being stoked. And it would be tempting to say that by the time the three of them had turned down Woburn Walk, a narrow Dickensian passageway where the windows of the Sorrento Cafe glowed pale and yellow in the dusk. What would happen had somehow already happened. The loving and mourning had already begun and already ended, even though in real time, as the rain fell over London on that autumn evening, Ruth had only known Joseph for an instant. 
Reaching the Sorrento, Robin pushed open the door for Ruth and Joseph followed her inside. The cafe was warm, sour with the smell of the weather and they took a table by the bay window, looking out through the thick glass at wet flagstones and a neat little man with an umbrella nipping through a wrought iron gate opposite and down to a tailor's in the basement. And there was something raw and unsettled in the air between the three of them that was more than just the dubious freedom of a Friday afternoon. Yeah. I love that, Hilary. And I um, I remember reading that section in your book because it's kind of near the beginning, I think. Yeah, it's very nice. And I remember, and I know you obviously, and we're colleagues in the Irish Times uh, to a degree, but I remember reading that. And you know, when you just the hair stand up on your back and you sort of go, oh, I'm going to really like this book. It, there's a beautiful scene setting there that I really, really enjoyed. Now, Nisha Dolan, I'm going to come to you next to tell us about exciting times and to read a little bit too so we can get a flavour. Yeah, it's a novel about a young Irish woman named Ava who comes to Hong Kong and has sex with two people, a man named Julian and a woman named Edith, and she doesn't initially have to choose because none of them are, I suppose, intrinsically invested in monogamy, but circumstances and her own poor communication it eventually compel a choice, which to me constitutes a plot. One thing I find fascinating is that people think novels don't have plots if that plot is purely relationships like somehow um the things that we do with each other aren't as eventful as things that have some kind of other thing happening outside when like some of the plottiest times of my life have been working out who to go out with anyway um i will read from the start i guess like i'm not good at giving context so i'll just jump right in July 2016. My banker friend Julian first took me for lunch in July, the month I arrived in Hong Kong. I'd forgotten which exit of the station we were meeting at, but he called saying he saw me outside Kiwa Bakery and to wait there. It was humid. Briefcase bearers cropped out of turnstiles like breeding Dennis. The tannery bred at first Cantonese, then Mandarin, and finally a British woman saying, please mind the gap. Through the concourse and up the escalators, we talked about how crowded Hong Kong was. Julian said London was calmer, and I said Dublin was too. At the restaurant, he put his phone face down on the table, so I did the same, as if for me too, this represented a professional sacrifice. Mindful he'd be paying, I asked if he'd like water, but while I was asking, he took the jug and poured. Work's busy, he said. I barely know what the hell I'm doing. Bankers often said that. The less knowledge they professed, the more they knew, and the higher their salary. I asked where he'd lived before Hong Kong, and he said he'd read history at Oxford. People who'd gone to Oxford would tell you so, even when it wasn't the question. Then, like everyone, he'd gone to the city. Which city, I said. When Julian assessed whether women made jokes, decided we did, and laughed. I said I didn't know where I'd end up. He asked where old I was. I said I'd just turned 22, and he told me I was a baby and I'd figure it out. We ate our salads, and he asked if I dated in Hong Kong yet. I said not really, feeling yet did contradictory things as an adverb, and there were more judicious choices he could have made. In Ireland, I said, you didn't date. You hooked up, and after a while you came to an understanding. Julian said, so you're saying it's like London? I don't know, I said. I've never been. You've never been to London? No? Ever? Never, I said, pausing long enough to satisfy him that I tried to change this fact about my personal history upon his second theory and was very sorry I failed. Ava, he said, that's incredible. Why? It's such a short flight from Dublin. I was disappointed in me too. He'd never been to Ireland, but it would have been redundant to tell him that it was also a short flight that way. We discussed headlines. He'd read in the FT that the offshore in Lindy was down against the dollar. The one piece of news I could offer was that a tropical storm was coming. Yes, he said, Mir and I, and the typhoon the week after. We agreed it was an exciting time to be alive. Both storms came, unrelated to beat up getting lunch. I'm glad we're friends, he'd say, and far be it from me to correct a baby old man. I felt spending time with him would make me smarter, or would at least prepare me to talk about the currencies and indices with the serious people I would encounter in the course of adult life. We got on well. I enjoyed his money, and he enjoyed how easy investor was by it. I love that exciting time to be alive. It's brilliant. I just love the way I love the way you all write, but it's just um, uh, particularly your two uh, styles are very. You're all your three styles are very different, but um, I just found all your books so engaging. And immediately I was in them. I wanted to stay there in those worlds, and and for various reasons, all of them stayed with me. We can talk about that a little bit more. So I'll go on to you, Susanna. Um, but uh, tell us what your book's about. I, the reason I mentioned plotlessness, by the way, Nisha, as well, is because when I interviewed Susanna before, and that was one of the first things she said to me, is that she was worried people would be, uh, you know, put off by the plotlessness. So you can tell us about that, Susanna. 
I, I mean, you really rinsed me there. It's almost like I say it to kind of preempt the criticism. <laughs> like there's some sort of plot ombudsman who is going to come <laughs> and I'm going to throw up my hands and say, it's deliberate, you know. Um, but yeah, uh, so Tennis Lessons is um, a Buildings Roman charting the life of a young Northern Irish woman uh, from the age of three to 28. Um, structured in these little vignettes that check in on the various years of her life and chart her friendships, relationships, family traumas, uh, sexual encounters, sexual traumas, and various um, exploits. Uh, so I'm gonna read a little bit. 26 years old, May. You have breakfast with your mother the day you leave. She orders porridge with fruit and you order pancakes with bacon. At the bus station, she holds you for a moment and tells you to stay safe. You feel a familiar hot pressure below your eyes. You tell her you will, because who is worth staying safe for if not her? You fight the urge to apologize for a hundred things she has probably forgotten about. She puts a white envelope with money into your pocket and helps you maneuver the two suitcases onto the bus. She waves to you from the curb as you board. You wave back. You take a window seat, looking at yourself in the glass. Your reflection is crowded. As the bus moves, your face houses a yard of coaches, the river, a furniture showroom, a Domino's pizza, an old quarry. Soon, vast spaces of countryside and hills roll faster and faster across your features. You watch as this small portion of the world moves through you. You get a text from, you get a text from Rachel saying, can't wait to share a city with you, sweetums. And another text from your father saying, safe journey, love, keep in touch. You wonder if any good decision can exist in a vacuum. Thank you very much. Um, as I said, all very different, but all really, really engaging. Um, can we talk then, maybe the three of you, about your first novel, that experience? I know you've nothing to compare it to, but I suppose, Hilary, you had a, a memoir, Hopscotch, before. Uh, mm -hmm. Susanna, you're a poet originally, and you've been published in that way. And Anisha, you've been published in sort of literary journals and things like that before. But maybe, Hilary, coming to you, what was the experience of that debut novel like? And I suppose at a certain um, older age to mm -hmm. Nisha and Susanna, maybe, mm -hmm. I suppose that might have been different. I mean, it, I think it was. I think it was very different. I, um, I suppose I'm really grateful that I got to the point um, of doing it. You know, um, essentially. I mean, I was thinking about this this morning, and you know, there's been such extraordinary work has come out in the last, certainly in this last year, and, and if not before, from you know, from both Nisha and Susanna, and from obviously from Sally Rooney, and from a, a, a plethora of young novelists, and. Uh, at the time that I began a career that I suppose that wasn't there. I mean, that wasn't the, um, that wasn't the shape of the world that I, I came out to from school. And I mean, without, I'm not going to do a history lesson, but by way of answering your question very, very quickly in 1979, when I left school, there was, you know, education wasn't free. Third level education wasn't free. I came from a very skinned background and uh, from people who tried to work in the arts and had absolutely no money. So, for me, it was a very different kind of journey. At 17, I started working in childcare and stuff like that. But anyway, at 55, I went to university and I think that the experience of writing the book is absolutely tight. It's key, that was absolutely key for me. It took me a long time, but I finally went to Trinity at 55. And although I had been um, writing and largely for theatre and also for the newspaper, um, it was the first time that I kind of admitted to my, my own vulnerability in the way to myself, you know, I had this notion of how much I wanted to be a writer and I never actually, even though I was working as a writer, really felt like I was a writer. I don't know what that even is now. I don't, still don't for what it's worth. But um, at that point in Trinity, I had for the first time in my life a year which was for myself, my children were older, my mother had died, these were both points in my life that I had to give a lot of energy to. And so for the first time ever at 55, I, I was able to breathe in my own air really. And um, 
and I wrote the book then. Mm-hmm. And it was like, it felt like, um, it was just a joyous thing for me, really. The whole experience of finally having that margin felt utterly joyous to me. And so the writing of the book just felt, uh, man, I was just so glad to meet it every day when I'd go into the shed in the garden. That's, that's lovely. Yard, I, actually, I have to say, it is not a garden. There's no grass. It's just okay. a yard. It's a yard. That's what I have. It's a yard. It's okay. That's my experience, yeah. That is my experience. That's lovely. And I want to come to you, Nisha, because Hilary mentioned her experience at Trinity, and that's where you studied. And I suppose, would it be true to say that you found your voice as a writer while studying English in Trinity yourself? I don't think so, to be honest. I didn't write for most of it, and my friends weren't writers or anything. Um, I did do one creative writing module that lasted about eight weeks in the last year. And that was really helpful because um, so Deirdre Madden told us back then, I don't know if she still does. And she's just the most pragmatic writer I've ever met. And I don't mean that at all as saying that she doesn't have an artistic sensibility. Like if you read her books, the poetic attention to detail is very much there. But I mean, she'll just sit you down and say, here's how to edit yourself properly. And here's how to divest yourself of any notions you might have and just like I I think she put me on the right course so that was influential but the other years there not so much except to the degree that having experiences makes you write and I find it interesting therefore that people stress Trinity so much because I'm convinced if I spent those years at another university people wouldn't be so keen to build up a narrative of that as having made me the writer I am and you know I say that inside that so potentially it has had more of an effect than I realised, but I feel as well that there's a perception of universities as necessarily producing good writers for no reason. Like, why would going somewhere where hardly anyone teaches me to write make me good at writing? That's fair enough. I, I totally agree. But I think, I suppose, in, in your case, Hilary, it was it was a time all that the stars aligned and it did actually it mean a lot space. to you. Because you, you never had a degree, it wasn't something you did as a young person. So oh. walking into the gates of Trinity was massive for you. It's funny that Nisha mentioned um, Deirdre Madden because for me, I, I would say that, and, and again, it, it, for me, it was space. It was just space to stop and have somewhere. I got on a train every morning and went to a space that I could write in. That was absolutely huge. But Deirdre Madden, I agree with you utterly, Nisha. She was absolutely fantastic. And for me, like, I went in with this kind of a, a kind of sack of bits of writing, you know, and put them on the table. And it, that pragmatism that she had, and that sense of support for me was absolutely huge. And it was Deirdre, I, and I acknowledge her in Ways of Love, who for me gave me, it was like a, a you know, it was a, a lifeline for me, really. Her, just her focus was just fantastic. I, I think she's amazing, yeah. Um, Susanna, I want to come to you. And I, I read this quote that you gave uh, to some publication and, and you said, I write poetry because I love language and I write prose because I hate myself. So I need you to explain that, please. Um, um, So, yeah, I I started with poetry and and poetry is is so odd. Um, I mean, Ben Lerner has written an essay about this called The Hatred of Poetry. And it's about how the genre of poetry is so heavily romanticised, but the reality of poems people view with such vehement suspicion. And um, and it's bizarre the way people champion this this notion of of the craft of poetry. I I read a thing the other day written in The Guardian where someone wrote, oh, um, I knew I liked Joe Biden the moment he started quoting Heaney because you can't pretend to like Heaney. Like, of course you can. Um, I'm sure like Jim Core could rattle off a couple of lines of W.B. Yeats. Like, it doesn't make him a good person. Um, but I think because of that, from, from writing poetry, you yourself develop this innate suspicion of yourself and, and, and what you're writing. And you're, you have to set that aside. You have to set aside your whole kind of ego or, or self-perception when, when writing poetry and it becomes strictly about language and, and form. And then when it came to writing a novel, I think just because of the topography of prose, I felt this greater freedom because I thought someone would see this, see that it's prose and trust me 
and and it almost made me more indulgent in a way of of imbuing it with my own proclivities with my own thoughts and when you're doing that you realize that you have some deeply unsavory thoughts <laughs> and and you don't come away from it liking yourself interesting <laughs> i'm thinking of um during the grief as you're speaking a ghost in the throat i don't know if anybody has read Duran's book but um she's a poet and that's her first sort of prose and i definitely think uh I, as poets, you bring something else and the language is there. The poetry is very much jumps off the page, I think, in your mm-hmm. book, Susanna, and in Deren's as well. One thing I have to say about reading Susanna's book, Tennis Lessons, was when I picked it up and I saw that it was in the second person, I nearly threw it back down on the floor because I can't stand it, you know, this writing. But... Funny enough, the biggest achievement for me of, of your book, or one of the achievements, is, is making me love your book, even though it was written in that. Can you talk a little bit about using that tense, which in so many ways is very despised by some people? Maybe it's just me. It could be just me. Um, well, I mean, I think it was very much to my benefit that I didn't know a huge amount about the publishing industry or or what people like and dislike because I very soon realized that people do hate the second person um but by then it was too late I committed um but I remember reading Claudia Rankine's Citizen um when I was doing my undergrad and it's 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 called um it's interesting it's sort of like half poetry half prose lyric and it's all in the second person and the kind of diexis of that you that repeating you is especially interesting in that book because you know she's a black writer and and it's how that um how that pronoun captures a singular experience also a collective experience and also challenges a white readership to place themselves somewhere within a narrative that is not written for them in a way that so many narratives are. Um, but I think the U form is is so, so interesting in that, you know, when, when you're writing, you can't actually achieve true realism. You can't actually um, write living. Um, it's always going to be some sort of simulacrum of, of living. Um, and the U form almost leans into that because it's aware of itself as as it creating this reader um, writer relationship and it, and it makes the reader decide and have to decide consistently who they are going to be in a narrative and because some of the book deals with trauma it, it felt so pertinent to me because I wanted a reader to, to have to say, oh no, that's that's not me, or or that is me. And I also loved that it was able to give this protagonist this sense of dislocation from herself subsequent to, to trauma, which felt really important. Well, that's a very good uh, defense of the second person. And it, it really works in, in your novel, particularly. Um, Nisha, Hillary alluded earlier to a kind of uh, speaking of exciting times, that this is an exciting time for, for writing in Ireland at the moment. And uh, a lot of the people writing very uh, brilliant stuff are women. Were you conscious of that when you were putting when you were writing exciting times? And the an excerpt of it was first in The Stinging Fly and Sally Rooney was editor at the time. And um I know you know Sally obviously as well. Did did it feel was there is there a weight of that um, when you're kind of coming out with your first book and there is a lot of excitement around uh, women writers, particularly from Ireland. I don't know, like the way I see it, if people learn things about me from the media or from a publisher's blurb or whatever, that's not a space that would have otherwise been filled with me speaking for myself or a more accurate perception of me, or whatever. So I'm not losing anything if people find me up in narratives that don't fit or what have you so I just disregard it really which sounds so ungrateful but it's not really something I asked for or expected or knew about um like to that I didn't have any perception of the industry when I was writing and like I I think that's prefigured in the language that people discuss books in that reverse engineering of marketing as being a book's inception so they'll be like oh I'm not the target audience for this and like if anyone sits down and writes a novel with a target audience they're going to have a miserable novel 
because, like Susanna said, you're depending on the ability of people to project onto the blank stuff that you've given. So if you're projecting this imagined reader while you're doing that, I think it's going to be a lot more difficult to get that balance right. So um, I think that's my roundabout way of saying that while as a reader, I'm very happy and excited about any developments in art literature, I can't of necessity link that to what I'm doing because I would go mad. So I just write for myself, um, write what I think will make it interesting and then um, view cultural stuff quite separately to that, I guess. I think that's probably very wise because I imagine if it gets inside your head, it would affect kind of what you're doing and you need to keep them very uh, separate. I said earlier in the introduction about you and Susanna talking about a, a particular period in a in a woman's life or your character's lives coming of age time. Were there particular things that you wanted to say about that with exciting times? Because it, it is quite, I mean, what I loved about both those stories was it made me, I mean, I'm quite a long, I'm more like at Hillary's uh, stage of life. I'm late 40s, but yet I read both of your books. It, it gave me such a, for both of those stories, I really was able to go back to certain aspects of my own life, certain experiences. They, they felt very universal, even though they're both set in very contemporary times. So I'm just interested maybe to both of you, uh, what, what do you want to say about that time, which is so full and messy and mixed up and strange and all those kind of things? I suppose we're at a point in Irish history where you'd expect that women our age would still grow up with a lot of those experiences widely shared, widely shared I mean. So if I read a novel written by a young woman about a young woman and there were no references to any kind of sexual trauma regarding either her or the women she was close to, like I wouldn't go that should have been in, but I would go I think that also probably deliberately left that out because um, there are such universal aspects of experience still, but maybe we're at a point in Irish history where they're openly confronted often enough that I would be conscious of that reading those kind of books when maybe that, I mean, I, I feel like it's futile to try to project what it would have been like to read books way before I was reading them because that's inside other people's heads. So in a way, I feel like our generation is the worst to comment on what's generational, but um, I, I, I think what I'm trying to say is I wasn't trying to say anything. I was just trying to um, start some kind of balance between verisimilitude and making it still enjoyable. And that meant that a degree of unpleasant things went in, but shaped in such a way that was reasonably narratively satisfying, but not neatly wound up. And possibly I failed, but that was my endeavour. No, you didn't fail. I, I think what I'm trying to get at, and maybe my question wasn't very good. I mean, your book, Susanna, has been compared to May I Destroy You, or, or that if you like May I Destroy You, you like oh. this book, or or if you like Fleabag, you like this. I think what younger women now are writing are the things that perhaps weren't, weren't the people weren't able to write before, or it's being written in a much more authentic, real, no holds barred way. And I think that's what I may be responding to and uh, something that maybe wasn't there before. I don't know if you agree, Hillary, with that. Uh, it feels like everything's on the table now and nothing's being hidden away or, or uh, you know, everything's being said in the exact way that it's happening rather than couched in other ways because society wouldn't have been ready for it or something. Yeah, I and, and and again, it's very it's very difficult. I mean, Nisha said that thing that it's very difficult for for uh, it's very difficult to analyze these things when you're in the middle of them. You know what I mean? It's it's much easier to step back and look at this a couple of decades down the line. But I mean, certainly the kind of um, the kind of energy behind the younger and I also hate saying this, but be behind some of the younger voices that are coming out is absolutely fantastic. I mean, again, it's a joyous thing to read. And you know, you pick up Sally Rooney, you pick up Nietzsche, and you you're just thinking, oh man, this is just so good. This is just yeah. so good. You know, and I me, I want to get in a time capsule and I want to go back 40 years <laughs> and I want to I want to be reading these books as an 18-year-old exactly. and seeing what that ignites in me, you know, but at the same time, you know, when I was that age, you know, there were Edna O'Brien was there. There were, you know, there was Kate O'Brien. There was, you know, there were voices there that were pushing. I mean, without being really cliched about it, that were pushing the boundaries. The boundaries were very different. Um, and but but you do get a great energy. I think that an energy. I I think an energy flows around, and I think when there's very good work coming out and happening, and when I think that when that when that work is very is you know, it's being discussed in the media when it's out there in front of you, I think that it does ignite, I think that it does spark a kind of an energy, you know, mm -hmm. and for me, when I look at the pile of books beside my bed from Anne Enright to, you know, 
to Suzanne, these, these, these are the books that I'm reading. I mean, I find myself drawn again and again and again to reading, uh, you know, and not just Irish women, but that energy is there. And I'd love to be able to go backwards and start again. Yeah, I think you said it much better than I did. That's what I kind of meant. It's almost like a, a longing and nostalgia for wishing that we could have been able to share like that. And that now people are. And actually, it goes back to something that I was thinking about with you, Susanna, about Northern Ireland. I mean, I'm finding that as well, reading uh, young women writing from North, who are Northern Irish as well, that the books are allowed to be now not about the troubles or allowed mm. not to have that as a kind of... Yours is, is a... We don't even know your character's name for a reason that maybe you can explain but uh, we don't know her name it certainly isn't a troubles novel it, it happens to be set in northern ireland but that's not uh, it's not the northern ireland that maybe we're used to could you talk a little bit about those decisions that you made writing the book um yeah so i think by virtue of of being born in in the 90s and i think people now being born in northern ireland in the 90s are being afforded the privilege of almost political complacency um, and I don't think we realize that that's a privilege but it, it is a privilege to, to, to be a child in Northern Ireland now and to be disengaged um, and I think you know the deaths this year of, of John Hume and Seamus Mallon and the conversations around their work have thrown into acuity just how precarious the that situation was and, and is and continues to be and, and the murder of, of Lyra McKee last year once again reminded us that that this is still an area of of political tumult. Um, but it was certainly the case for me and many of my friends that we were afforded this this kind of cloistered um, attitude towards politics. And and I and I'm not saying that that's a good thing, but it's 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 the reality. Um, and I wanted to write that. And and this protagonist is such a deeply cloistered individual anyway. In, in in how she how she thinks, there is no really there is no real world beyond how she is perceiving it, and and how she kind of metabolizes it all through her experiences and through her thoughts um, and and that's partly why why she's she's unnamed um because she doesn't really have a, a fixed identity beyond this kind of maelstrom happening in her head and she's not thinking of herself using her name she's this kind of mutable figure bouncing from from encounter to encounter um but I just to kind of draw on what Misha and, and Hillary were just saying, it's and what's so great about about their books and and about um, Irish women's writing happening now is is this the way it looks at kind of female psychology and, and female sexuality coming out of here. Um, I think it was Freud who said that like female sexuality, female psychology are a dark continent that he didn't want to have to try and get to grips with. Um, and I think, you know, Nisha and Hillary's books are so brilliant in that they they don't do what, what might be symptomatic of kind of male novels in, in the Western canon, which is to present either the novelist's personal ethics or their protagonist's personal ethics as like this kind of logos, this unimpeachable um, way of living. And, and both Nisha and, and Hillary's characters, you see them having these sort of fixed ideas of, of themselves and their way of lives that then get dismantled through experience. And the result is they're, they're so, they're, the books are so interesting that way because there's no kind of closure. And, and to me, that's all tied up, I think, with with being Irish and, and with finding yourself here and and with trying to sort of get to grips with with being a person and, and with being a woman in, in this country. Mm. Nisha, have you any thoughts on that and on the dark continent of female sexuality? Because there's quite a bit of sex in your book too. Yeah, yeah. So um, I think that's interesting in terms of expectations forged largely by Anglo-American critics and readers 
around character development. So um, like Susanna's book as well, it's, I think for a lot of Irish women writers, maybe more interesting to stage that national coming to terms, um, not directly through some kind of analogue or whatever, but like with that psychology of holding something still long enough to understand it, which in the case of a young woman whose um, world exists inside her head and is processed inevitably through her subjectivities, you'll get a novel out of without that young woman necessarily changing too much. Um, so how that links to sexuality, um, I developed a terrible habit at university of claiming that everything is gay, but I do think it is heteronormative to um, see everything as forward and advancing and for future generations. And that's linked to capitalism as is heteronormativity itself. That's the other thing I did at university. But like, <laughs> I, I think what I'm saying is there are a lot of neutralized assumptions around the point of a novel being to take a character show them having a broadly good moral mindset that's not perfect, that is perfect at the end of the book, or failing that, punish them for their failure to advance. And this is meant to be instructive and teach us how to thrive. However, um, I think at pretty much any stage of Irish history, you grow up with at least a background sense that not everything is great. Like Susanna said, um, it might be more or less ambient depending on what you're in, but... I don't think there's been any point in Irish history where you can live a solid 20 to 30 years and not have had some point of national trauma along the way. So maybe that's why there are fewer stakes set down in, I suppose, conventional progressions, both of psychology and of interactions with others. Hmm. And we should say as well, I mean, with your uh, everything is gay um, idea, it is a queer novel, I suppose, your book as well, we should mention, because uh, Hilary, you've got a love triangle and so has Nisha. Um, Nisha's just happens to be between uh, two uh, women and one man. Um, what about that? Did you feel you were doing something different, Nisha? Because it's not something I had read in an Irish novel before or necessarily many novels, uh, that, that kind of exploration of somebody who fancies both genders all that kind of thing yeah like I feel like maybe the least gay thing is the direct handling of the relationships in that because it's one woman who um is processing everything through the same brain um neither comes with a particular flag planted on it or any of that but um uh, yeah like I, I don't know what to say really because I feel like for me heteronormativity and straightness are the blaring concepts like most of the people I'm close to aside from my parents are gay and it's just how I see and experience the world and funnel everything and why would I try to write relationships from another standpoint if you get me. Yeah fair enough um, I do think though it's it's uh, for me it was refreshing and different because it's not something that I have come across a lot in literature so I suppose that's the point I was making as well and uh, what about you Hilary for sex and sexuality and that aspect of your book um do you find it easy to write those kind of scenes or and have you are they challenging at all I mean I if, you know it's so interesting I'm finding myself very caught up in the discussion um <laughs> I, I, um, I don't know what I think about anything but I'm fascinated by what you guys think uh no I mean I'm coming from, you know, a word like heteronormative, which is such a brilliant word. And I grew up in a country that there was no contraception, you know. So when I was 17, and this is not, I'm not making this up, my friend made a condom out of toilet paper and sellotape. She put, she wrapped sellotape around her boyfriend's erect penis and then put sellotape around it and tried to make that as a kind of reusable condom, right? So that is where I'm coming from. Okay. Uh, my sister walked me down um, uh, North Great, South Great Tour Street, all the way right down to the end, the very first World Women's Centre in Dublin to try and get the pill when I was um, 17, when I started to see my boyfriend. And, uh, and I grew up, you know, so the characters... A lot of people of my age, there is still sexuality is, is sex is still tied into fear. It's still tied into some kind of barter. 
and an awful lot of the women and I mean I'm not entirely sure where I'm going with this but an awful lot of the women that I went to school with that I met that you know recently at my 40-year school reunion married the guys that they went out with when they were 15 and 16 because those were the those were the most available choices to them economically socially and culturally in terms of you know because of the danger of pregnancy it is a totally different world where your sexual expression is not tied into the fear of reproduction it is a totally different world there is something that's been bothering me for a long time which is people read the weight of love and ruthism there's something beautiful both of you guys said earlier you know that she's not representative of anything in particular and she doesn't really know what she wants she's living in the world she's living in her world and she's trying to make sense of it and people say well what does she want you know why isn't she more actively pursuing what she wants well what she wants is just to understand her world and she wants to understand it coming from that kind of coming from those moments through to the moments that she's in now where she can go back to a lover uh, 30 years later and sleep with him again and because of his age and because of his illness there's a moment that he can't come they're they're in bed together and for me that was the most intimate moment of writing the sex of writing sex and the book was actually when he couldn't come because he was just he was just tired and a little bit overwhelmed and uh and he'd been ill and her there that moment between the two of them meant something to me mm. I, don't no, I, think, I don't know but you know do you know what i'm trying to say i i do i think it's interesting the two um perspectives of sex and sexuality and, and coming from a different place and all those years of growing up where it was about fear rather than anything so else much fear. have to come into you and into your work as well yeah so much fear and i have you know my my son is your age, Nisha, and I, 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 um, I look at his life and the kind of love and the way he can love and the kind of freedom that he has and his friends, and it is, it is a different country. Mm. Susanna, you, I saw something else you wrote about um, tennis lessons uh, where you mentioned that a lot of books are about growing and improving and people getting better and finding themselves and realising and that you were more interested in, I thought the word was a very good one, stagnation. And that, and that tennis lessons is very much about someone for a long time stagnating and not necessarily growing or improving. There's a little bit of light at the end, possibly, but it's not that much light. Uh, can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. And and I do think it's 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 once again all tied in with this idea of place and how place shapes you. Um I mean Northern Ireland is is in my opinion a very kind of taciturn place. Um there's a lot of not saying going on. Um and I don't think that's uh, an especially kind of verdant environment in which to become the best version of, of yourself. Um, and then you factor in these additional concerns. Um, and, you know, I, I know I said that it's, it's, it's her privilege to be sort of um, politically ambivalent, but the, the realities of place do sort of seep in in this insidious way. Um, and, you know, tying in with what, with, with what Hillary um, just said, and we have that in Nisha's book, to the, the abortion fund um, and how there are these, these innate fears that, that maybe people don't have elsewhere. Um, and then we've got in, in Tennis Lessons the narrative of, of her uncle. Um, so she has this, this uncle who, who um, is, is diagnosed when she's a child and she doesn't really understand this at the time, but he's diagnosed with HIV and um, and I remember researching this at the time of writing that the, the suicide rates for um, those diagnosed with, with HIV in, in Ireland um, were appalling, were, were so, so high for a period. And I do think, again, that's all tied in with a, 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 a deeply entrenched uncommunicativeness and, and when you don't communicate, fear is just allowed to sort of take hold and, and, and spread and grow and kind of consume you. 
and and so much of the protagonist and adolescent's life is is consumed by by fear be they rational fears or, or irrational fears and her deep reluctance to 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 discuss that is is why she she stagnates um she sort of plants herself in this little hole um just festers for for a lot of the novel um and you know i i fester i, I fester <laughs> regularly i feel like much of my life up to now has has been festering um, so i thought why not write that yeah, I don't think you're on your own there in the festering. I, I've been known. Hillary, do you do the festering? Oh God, me no. <laughs> yeah, we fester, um, we fester in our own. We fester in our own hands. Yeah. Nisha, one thing um, I really love about your book is the 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 exploration of class. And you know, Julian is this very arrogant kind of you know Oxford type business banker guy, and Ava has a very different life, but has wonderful observations about that whole thing. I'm, I'm just um, curious about how, where your interest in that came from and wanting to look at it. And it's also kind of, it's quite funny too. I mean, I think I think all your books actually have a really great stream of humour uh, through them. But talk to me about class and about kind of your interest in that, those differences between people. Yeah, I suppose it is a festering really. Um, I, and some of that just stems from how I began conceiving of the narrator as a character as I wrote. Um, like, it's a funny thing writing a first person novel because you're laying your own trap and you can just go back and change something, but some things just seem so ingrained to the character that you continue and build off them. And I suppose one of those things was that she was interested in the system she saw around her. And I, I think it's probably the same strain of the protagonist's personality that lends itself to her interest in language. And so there's a lot of overlap in how she explores those concepts. Maybe as well, because those differences don't have the material backing that they might have um, where she's still in her hometown of Dublin and able to pick things up really quickly from where someone lives or whatever. So. I think a lot of um, the narrator's observations on class are her systemizing a new world and taking like a really narrow part. Uh, you know, she's in Hong Kong and she's fixating on where all these British men went to school. But um, I think it's setting itself up within this bubble and just describing it as opposed to proposing a solution. I, I want to ask you all before we finish as well about where you are all at now in terms of your writing journey because I'd imagine once you have your first novel out and there's all that big hullabaloo and there's the interviews and I mean let's also state you all had books out in a pandemic which is kind of not something any of you expected when you were writing it uh, so we might talk about that a little bit but also then where you're at now and, and how do you they talk about the difficult second album is it the same with with the novel as well so Hilary what about having a book in a pandemic and what you're writing now yeah having the book in the pandemic was was um quite interesting because uh the book was supposed to launch on the 18th of March and so it was actually in the bookshop windows when the when the shutters came down <laughs> you could kind of peer through Hodges figures and wave at it yeah it was Actually, it didn't do the book too much harm, and and I'm very grateful to the people who found a way to read it, um, and very grateful to the reviewers who said that it was a book uh, that people might really like to read in the pandemic. I think that really helped. I, I don't think it was the worst thing that could have happened to me. Um, in terms of the difficult second album, I've had so many difficult second albums at this stage. You know that I could open you know, uh, secondhand shop with full of them. Um, I'm going to go back and write for theatre straight away. Um, I'm going to do a piece of work um, for theatre now. Um, and uh, but I, I'm also, I'm a very, 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 very slow writer. And after ten years of writing 760 word chunks on a weekly basis for the Irish Times, there's also a kind of hamster wheel thing in my head. I can only write in 760 word chunks, and then I kind of dismantle myself and get into a drawer. Um, so I will finally write another novel, but um, I could be uh, deep in my. I don't know when it's going to manage to. I, I know what it. I know the shape of it. I can smell it. I can see the. The wisp of it, but uh, but it's it's very uh, embryonic at the moment. Okay, good word, embryonic. Uh, Susanna, what about you? How um, has the experience of of having your debut novel been in this very strange time? And also, how you're you're doing your PhD at the moment, aren't you? 
Well, I mean, I guess the thing about living now is is that nothing is not sort of symbiotic with the pandemic. Um, everyone's doing everything during the pandemic. And to be honest, releasing a book during the pandemic is probably on the spectrum of much kinder, nicer things <laughs> than, what I, than what lots of people are doing. Um, you know, because everything now is sort of tempered by by anxiety about the pandemic, fear or, or, or gratitude who have not been um, personally um, affected by it. Um, so yeah, it, it, was, it was fine to release a novel during the pandemic. Um, uh, I, I have no complaints. Um, you know, I didn't get to um, public to the benefit of my reputation in the long run. Um, <laughs> I should probably, you know, I'd probably never be more liked than when I've been locked in my house. Um, as for the, the second book, yeah, the, the thing was that I, 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 so I finished a draft of it during the first lockdown um, because I was, I was writing quite, um, you know, ferociously because it was, um, I lived alone during the, the first lockdown and um, I've since moved in with people, um, but it was a way of experiencing time differently. Um, I find that I could just lose time when I was writing and in a way that I was really, really grateful for. Um, and yeah, at the minute I'm just sort of working on the second draft of it, um, writing some poetry as well and just sort of trucking on. Trucking along. And Nisha, are you trucking along with your writing? You're in London, I should have said earlier. Um, what's life in London like now during this current latest lockdown? Um, well, I'm a deeply indifferent trucker at the best of times. I do not have um, enormously good coping skills out there. So for me, it's just the usual. But yeah, um, I, so I wrote a novel, but then decided I didn't want to publish it. But now I've written another one that I do think will publish. So I'm due to have, well, I was due to hand that into my agent yesterday, but I'm doing final tweaks and there'll always be more final tweaks that then end up making it worse. And then you need to change other things to accommodate the original final tweak. Like, yeah, so I, whenever that's ready, I'll hand that in and hopefully it'll be out in like seven years. Publishing is so slow. Do you um, do you write quite quickly then compared to what Hillary was saying in, with her seven hundred and sixty word chunks? Because you said you've written you've written two novels since then, essentially. Yeah, but I I feel like we mean different things when we say that we've written something. Like you can't ever say how written something is until you've actually seen the draft. So it could just be that I'm less exacting with my initial drafts and I need to spend more time editing. Like it took me three years to edit my book. I, like exciting times I wrote it in like four months and then I didn't you know show anyone for years and then it was years again before I get showed an agent more time again before it was actually published so yeah it's just all a process I guess. Um, all of you have had such great um, acclaim does the pressure of that uh, ha hamper you in any way when you go to write your next thing because you've all had brilliant reviews I was just looking back at them you know today before I spoke to you and it's really quite extraordinary the lovely things that people have said about your books it must be quite gratifying but does it add to pressure at all? Um, well this book I won't be writing in the second person <laughs> so <laughs> <laughs> in that respect it almost feels like less pressure that's true that's good um what about you hillary there is i think there is always fear of failure i mean i will always carry around fear of failure and it would be i'd be a liar to, if i say oh, i don't read the reviews and they don't mean anything to me it meant a huge amount to me the reviews that weight of love got it was totally unexpected i never expect to win anything or you know i don't expect it you know and um, and uh, yeah, so it does make me fearful, you know, and I ex accepted a, a theatre commission recently and for the first time, I think for the first time in my life, and maybe this is COVID related, I um, I woke up in the middle of the night and I thought, I can't do that. Mm. I'm, I'm, I'm not able to do that. I'm not, I'm not going to be able to do that. And a really close friend of mine said, oh, yeah, you're right. So just, yeah, just stop writing. That's fine. Just, just don't write. And I thought, okay, I'm going to do it. You know, I know. <laughs> Like I you either write or you don't write. And if I don't write, I'm going to have to do a lot of cleaning or something. I don't know. <laughs> so I'm just going to write instead and see what happens. 
Anisha, what about you? You're about to send off this draft. You know, you haven't sent it. You're tweaking. Is, th- is that a horrible moment or a great moment? Do you feel, you know, great anticipation or nerves or what is it? Gorgeous. I love tweaking. Like I live to tweak. <laughs> By far the bit that I hate the most about writing is getting the initial draft. Once it's there, like I am in hog heaven. I could tweak for like the rest of my life. The only reason that I ever send things off is economic necessity. If it were just purely for my own satisfaction, I'd keep it forever. So <laughs> yeah, no, I'm grand. I'm just happy to have the actual block building done and now I can just paint it and knock a few bits off. Now we are here for the Dublin Book Festival and we'll wrap it up shortly. But uh, I was just thinking about books that you've read over lockdown during the pandemic that have inspired you or that you've really loved because some people found it difficult to read. I think at the beginning, particularly, I found it myself. I was picking up books and I was not getting through them. But then as we got more used to it, I think people got back to reading. And it's been wonderful to see all the books being ordered uh, online and people showing off on social media about their books they've, they've just recently got. So maybe if you could all pick a book that you'd recommend or one that you think people might enjoy at this particular time? Anybody read anything interesting? There's been a lot of good work out there. There's been a lot of really terrific work out there. I mean, um, I've been revisiting some some stuff as well. And I was saying to, we're talking about this with Martin the other day, I've, um, I started reading Virginia Woolf again um, because I absolutely love the the weather of her books. I love the shape of it. I love the flow of it. I love the energy of, of it. And the, the kind of, uh, you know, she, she, she skirts sanity <laughs> in a lovely way. I found that, but also I find um, reading short books, like I read Mary Gatskill's um, The Lost Cat. I don't, it's, it's a tiny book, a novella. I've found shorter books have been really useful during COVID as well. Um, and Dara Negrifa's Ghost in the Throat, because again, there was that, a bit like Mary Gatskill, she kind of, she makes herself very, very raw and she makes herself very direct and uh, and without much protection in the book. And that, you're grateful to read honesty, I think, uh, at a time when, yeah, when you need that kind of friend, you know. Two good recommendations there. Susanna, any books that you um, So I recently read, um, it's a book called White Ivy um, by Susie Yang. I think it comes out next year. And it's it's an amazing book. It's um, a real sort of thrill ride. And, and it does such interesting things in how it kind of um, invokes and then subverts sort of racial tropes um, about, about Chinese characters. And it's and there's this protagonist Ivy who is this really um phenomenal kind of anti-heroine she's strange and and weird and it's such a compelling book so I love that um also uh in terms of poetry um Colette Bryce who's a poet from Derry her latest collection came out in the spring it's called The End Pages and it's um, an elegy uh, for her sister and it's just completely beautiful and, and heartbreaking and remarkable. Um, so yeah. Excellent. Thanks very much. And finally, Nisha, what have you been reading that you would like to recommend? Um, the new Sayaka Murata. So um, I've, I I think like every time I've been on anything, I've raved about convenience for a woman. So good news, Johnny, and he's um, acted on that recommendation. There is a follow-up. It's called... Uh, <laughs> It's a whole lot darker, but I don't think it's darker in its interests. It's just darker in how far it takes them. It's about how twisted concepts of normality are and how they lead to a whole lot of trauma when people internalise, um, I, I suppose, the perception that what other people do is what they should be doing regardless of what their own instinct says. So it's um, about a Japanese woman in her 30s and her experiences around that. But it's got this almost fable quality to it um it's fabulous the word fabulous is not the word it's a fabulous book in terms of it's a good book but it's not fabulous in terms of being a tiny reading experience it's quite um sparse and I suppose deadpan and I really enjoyed Fran Ross's Oreo recently as well um funny in a kind of different more biting way very referential um and just really formally interesting 
Well, thank you all very much for taking part in this. It's been an absolutely compelling conversation. I agree with Hilary. I, I, I love that you were getting lost in it, Hilary, because yeah. I was doing that too and just going, well, I just love hearing all of you speak. It's so interesting. As I said, you are all, all different, but all equally fascinating and engaging. So thank you all very much. And to all of you listening, if you'd like to buy any of our author's books, they are available at the Dublin Book Festival bookshop on www.dublinbookfestival.com. There's going to be loads more events taking place over the next couple of days at the festival so check out the program on the website thank you all very much and enjoy the rest of the festival thank, thank you, you. <laughs> brought to you by dublin book festival proudly supported by the arts council of ireland the irish copyright licensing agency dublin unesco city of literature dublin city council and rte supporting the arts Thank you.